And for those of you kids that are hanging out in here this morning, I love your artwork. And so if you will draw a picture for me, color something for me, give it to me at the end of uh, church today, then I would be proud to display it on my wall. My art wall is very sad right now. It needs your touch. Uh, and so give me some artwork after church and uh, be glad to put it up there. If you have your Bible with you this morning, brothers and sisters, would you please open to Romans chapter 15. And if you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up that black Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And if you're new to the Bible, you'll find our passage on page 1008 in that pew Bible. Uh, Romans 15 verses 14 to 33 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. If I were to ask you, what is the high point of a wedding ceremony, what would you say? Think about the different parts of a wedding ceremony. There's a lot of things that happen and go on in that thing. What is the high point, the apex of the action? What are we driving towards there? I think a lot of people might say, well, the apex is, is the pronouncement where the minister says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, you may kiss the bride. And that's the wrong answer, uh, and I'm the one with the answer key, so I get to decide that's not the high point of the ceremony. Rather, the high point is the commitment. Everything builds to that question to the groom or to the bride, will you take this woman to be your God-chosen wife? Will you take this man to be your God-chosen husband? And then they answer, I do that's the high point of the ceremony. Everything builds to that. The very reason family and friends have gathered together on that day is for that commitment. And the reason the bride is given by her father to the groom, the reason the minister has something to say about what marriage is and what a covenant looks like and what God has to say about husbands and wives... All of that builds to this moment. We're here as witnesses. Here's what God has said. Now, will you be this kind of husband? And will you be this kind of bride? They make their commitment to each other, and they say, I do. That's the high point of the ceremony. Now, the book of Romans, if we think about it like a wedding ceremony, so to speak, well, what we're studying this morning is the apex of the action. It is the call to commitment. We've been in the book of Romans since January. And everything has been precursor up to this point, up to this very passage. As Paul begins to bring the letter to a close, he calls for commitment he asks for I do statements, so to speak, from his readers. Paul wants a commitment from you. He's a persuasive writer, and this is a persuasive piece of literature. It's not just a, hey, how are you type of letter, just a touching base type of letter. It is a call for commitment. And the person who has read Romans right and studied it properly will be seen in their commitment to these things Paul calls for. He wants a commitment from you. Are you all in for the cause of Christ? What kind of Christian are you? 
Now, I don't mean denominationally, like are you a Baptist, a Nazarene, a Pentecostal? I, I don't mean that kind of Christian. I, I, I mean, what kind of Christian are you? There are very different types of Christians. There are cultural Christians, those who are Christian by birth, just by uh, location, the same way you might be a Patriots fan by birth or a Red Sox fan by just geographic location. That's, that, those are your people, and so Christianity is your faith. It's a cultural construct. There's such a thing even as Christian agnostics. They are people who believe in some sort of God, a Bible-ish God, but they aren't really sure who He is. There's such a thing as Christian universalists. They believe that you can believe whatever you want to believe. All roads eventually lead to the same place. Those doctrines, their beliefs normally follow the voice of the crowds. But Paul is after a certain type of Christian. I would call it a cardiac Christian. Those who love Jesus from their hearts. These are God's men and women through and through. They, they are Christians who take up their cross and follow Jesus. They cling to faith no matter the cost. They love God from His Word. They are tenacious in their allegiance to the gospel and tenacious in their compassion to all people. What kind of Christian are you? Are you a cardiac Christian? Here in the middle of chapter 15, Paul begins to bring the letter to a close. He lands the plane, begins to land the plane. It's a long landing here. And as he does, he calls for commitment. He calls for four commitments to be exact. And so my goal today is to lead us to commit to be cardiac Christians and I want you to follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 14. Paul says this, My brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced about you that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Nevertheless, I have written to remind you more boldly on some points because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of the gospel of God. My purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. For I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by word and deed for the obedience of the Gentiles, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders, and by the power of God's Spirit. As a result, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. That's why I have been prevented many times from coming to you, but now I no longer have any work to do in these regions. And I have strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain. For I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you for my journey there once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Right now I am traveling to Jerusalem to serve the saints because Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased and indeed are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual benefits, they are obligated to minister to them in material needs. 
So when I have finished this and safely delivered the funds to them, I will visit you on the way to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in fervent prayers to God on my behalf. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, that my ministry to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed together with you. May the God of peace be with all of you. Amen. I preached this same passage just a little over a year ago, maybe about like 54 weeks ago to be exact. Uh, It was part of our sermon series on prayer. And I'm not sad at all to get to preach this passage again just a year later, nor am I going to try to be like super clever and make a a totally different sermon out of this passage. Uh, To be sure, I'm not re-preaching the same sermon, but... Any overlap between this one and that one, I'm not going to apologize for. I might just preach it again next year. I don't know. We'll just add it to the liturgical calendar, and uh, we'll just keep preaching it until we get it right. But here at the end of his chapter, Paul is calling us to commitments. The subject matter he puts in front of us pertains to his purposes in writing this letter. And in those purposes are the commitments that he wants us to make. Are you willing to make these commitments? There are four of them. And the first commitment is this. It's a commitment to gospel-shaped relationships. If you're going to be a cardiac Christian, if you're going to love Jesus from your heart, will you commit to gospel-shaped relationships? In Paul's opening paragraph, verses 14 to 16, he describes one of the goals of his letter. He says to the churches in Rome in verse 14, Look, I know you're full of goodness and knowledge. You're able to teach one another. Like, I know there's good things about you. And in verse 15, he says, Nevertheless, I've written to remind you more boldly on some points. So I know you're good. I know you've got good things happening. But I also know there are some things that need to be fixed in your churches. And that's why he's written this letter. So what are those points that Paul has written more boldly about? Well, I I think there are two. Just very broad strokes, there are two major points that Paul addresses in this letter. The first, in chapters 1 through 11, is an explanation of the gospel. It's all about our need for salvation how powerless we are to save ourselves, and how effective faith in Jesus Christ crucified and risen again is in saving a person, saving all those who believe. So the points that Paul is writing more boldly about, first is the gospel itself, 11 chapters of gospel exposition. And the second point Starting in chapter 12 and forward, Paul focused on the application of the gospel to our relationships. The the two main points Paul is writing about in the letter to the Romans is the gospel and then the application of the gospel to our relationships. God's love to us and then our love to each other. 
So if at the conclusion of our time in Romans, you were to take a quiz, and one of the questions was, what is the letter to the Romans all about? Your answer should be this. In short, it is about God's love for us and our love to each other. In fact, our choir just sang about it. They opened our service with a song with this line, how he loved us, children of God, now let us love each other. That's the message of Romans in verse, how he loved us and now let us love each other. And Paul is so concerned that we get the gospel right and so then we can get our relationships with each other right. In fact, he begins the letter by describing the horrific impact of sin, not just on our relationship with God, but on our relationships among each other. Do you remember how he opens the letter? Chapters 1, 2, and the first half of chapter 3 are all about the complete sinfulness of mankind and the impact that our sin has had on our relationship to God and our relationship to each other. And so in chapter 1, verse 25, because of our sin, we worship the creature rather than the creator. Chapter 1, verse 32, we celebrate those who rebel against God. Chapter 2, verse 24, we are hypocrites who play religious while destroying each other. Chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, we destroy each other with our words and our actions. Because of our sin, we are enemies of God and enemies of each other. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then he gives us the good news that God gives righteousness to sinful people through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe in chapter 3, verse 22. And he goes on to say, we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus because God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith. And so because of that good news and because of our experience of the gospel, since we are right with God, we're then to strive to live in this same way with each other. To love each other deeply as brothers and sisters, chapter 12, verse 10. Just to love each other, chapter 13, verse 8. To accept one another, chapter 14, verse 1. To pursue peace with each other, chapter 14, verse 19. And to glorify God together with one mind and one voice, chapter 15, verse 6. Since we are loved by God, we must love each other. You have been loved by the God who is love, and you are saved by the God who is love. You're being sanctified by the God who is love. You are a child, and your heavenly Father is love. And so, friends, if love is not the defining characteristic of your life, there is a deep spiritual problem. If our lives are defined by anger or bitterness or outrage or selfishness. We are not living in line with the very essence of our God who himself is love. And so Paul calls for this commitment out front. I, I've written on these points to you that you would know God through faith in Christ and then you would love each other. He calls us in this to a commitment to gospel-shaped relationships. If we were to choose one verb to sum up this commitment, that verb would be love. Will you commit to love others as God in Christ has loved you? There's a second commitment Paul calls for at the end of his letter. 
It's a commitment to proclaim the gospel. In Paul's second paragraph, verses 17 to 21, he speaks of his past endeavors to preach the gospel to people who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. God has enabled Paul to take the gospel from Jerusalem, he says, all the way around to Illyricum. So think of Jerusalem on the eastern shore, so to speak, of the, or to the east of the Mediterranean Sea. Illyricum is modern-day Albania up into Croatia. And so he has taken the gospel from the eastern side of the Mediterranean all the way to the eastern shores of the Adriatic Sea. And how has he done that? He says God has empowered him to do this in verse 19 by miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's Spirit. The gospel is spread by these miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's Spirit. Now, when Baptists try to make sense of signs and wonders, it requires a bit of work. Here's your simple way of making sense of signs and wonders. Signs and wonders always serve a purpose greater than themselves. The miracles of Jesus and the miracles of the apostles were there to add credibility to the messages they preached. They were there to point people to a greater message than just the signs themselves. So the miracles were not the goals but rather they were tools used towards the fulfillment of the goal, which was the salvation of those who believed. And I believe this is the same use today. Any place in the world where we would see miracles at play, the miracle is not the goal. Salvation is the goal. Belief in the gospel is the goal. And where that message needs help and validity, there I believe even to this day we will find miracles. I think the expressions of miracles as part of crusade services or miracle services I think is deeply problematic and difficult to justify biblically. But whereas miracles are tools for the advancement of the gospel, for the belief in Jesus Christ, there we see, I believe even to this day, we see signs and wonders. But it's faith in Jesus Christ that's the goal. So these miracles occurred not by Paul's power, but by the Holy Spirit's power. And likewise, the Holy Spirit empowered Paul's preaching so that where he preached, there were some who believed, and those who believed called on the name of Christ, and those who called on Christ were saved. Now, if you were to ask Paul, Paul, are you a miracle worker? I don't think that's how he would identify himself. That's not how he identifies himself in this very passage. Look at verse 20. He says, my aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. His passion to do this comes from his reading of Scripture. He quotes Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 52 in verse 21 here. Look at what he says. He says, those who were not told about him will see. Those who have not heard will understand. So when Paul reads Isaiah 52, he thinks of people who have not yet heard the gospel but when they do, they will understand, they will believe. Christ called Paul to preach, sent him to preach. Paul obeyed. He preached where Christ had not been named. 
people heard, and when they heard, they believed. And when they believed, they called on the name of Christ. And when they called on the name of Christ, they were saved. Are there still people on this planet who have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Absolutely there are. And what will happen to them if they die having never heard the gospel, having never believed on Jesus Christ? What is the fate of the unevangelized? Some would say this, well, surely God makes another way for them. Surely there's a, a special grace for them. Uh, surely they'll get credit for a good life. Surely they'll get credit for doing the best with what they have, worshiping the God that they know, no matter who that God is. Surely God wouldn't send an innocent person to hell. Romans 3.10 There is no one righteous. No, not one you're right, God would never send an innocent person to hell. But all have turned away. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no such thing as an innocent human before God. If there was another way to salvation, then the cross is pointless and Jesus died for nothing. Those who die without hearing the gospel will not see God's glory. And this is why Paul was driven to preach the gospel where Christ had not been named. He's motivated by his belief in the doctrine of hell. That if people don't hear, they can't believe. And if they don't believe, they can't call. And if they don't call, they won't be saved. And the only way to answer the question is to alleviate the problem altogether by making sure there is no place on this planet where Christ has not been named. And so it is to us, brothers and sisters, to this day to carry on the apostolic mission, to make sure that our neighbors at home and abroad have an opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You answer this question by speaking the gospel. We don't alleviate the issue of lostness by sitting here and hoping that God makes another way when the Bible tells us clearly that the gospel is plan A and there is no plan B for the lost. So our belief in the doctrine of hell doesn't lead us to sit in our pews and commiserate and hope Jesus works some weird thing out in the end. It gets us out of this building and puts the story of Jesus Christ in our mouths so that all people can hear and have a chance to call on Jesus Christ for their salvation. Your life must be committed to the proclamation of the gospel. Paul opened this letter with these very words. Chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said, The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I heard a preacher say recently, if a man hears the gospel and receives it, God is responsible. If he hears the gospel and rejects it, he is responsible. If he never hears it, I am responsible. Are you committed to the proclamation of the gospel? Would other people say that of you? Would heaven 
say that of you? Would other people say, I heard about Jesus from her or from him? The challenge for us is not just to believe that evangelism is important theologically, but to actually do it. And that same Holy Spirit who gave power to Paul for his ministry is the same Holy Spirit today who fills you and enables you to make Christ known. So if we were to summarize this commitment in a single verb, it would be the verb speak. Will you commit to speak the good news of Jesus Christ? Paul is asking us to commit to love to commit to speak. A third commitment is a commitment to support gospel work. When I say support gospel work, I am talking financially in this paragraph. Paul is calling us to use our finances for the work of the kingdom. So in Paul's third paragraph, verses 22 to 29, he begins to talk about his travel plans. He's talked He just talked to us about his past ministry. Now he's talking about future ministry. And you may remember that Paul wrote the letter to the Romans from Corinth. And his plan, he tells them, is he's going to leave Corinth. He's going to travel east and south to Jerusalem. A famine had hit Jerusalem. And Paul had collected money from his Gentile churches as an offering to help meet the needs of Christians in Jerusalem. And his plan was to deliver that offering to Jerusalem. And then from there, he was going to head back to Rome, visit Rome for a while, the Christians there. And he's going to get needed supplies for his trip and then continue on to Spain. Now, I want to be really clear. Paul's not, in his letter to the Romans, he's not saying, Venmo me some money so I can take it back to Jerusalem. He's not collecting for this offering for the mother church from Rome. But rather, they will become financial investors in his ministry when he comes back and stays with them for a while prior to taking the gospel where Christ has not yet been named in Spain. There's an inseparable connection between a Christian's finances and gospel work. God's people have always been investors in kingdom work. Now, look, we recognize that all power and all might and all ability belong to our God. We know that He does not require our dollars and cents for His kingdom work to be completed. It's not like the Great Commission will fail because we came up $30 short. That's that's not what we're talking about when we talk about finances and kingdom work. However, the New Testament has much to say about how Christians use their money to advance the kingdom of God. Now, the members of South Shore Baptist Church have covenanted together to support the spread of the gospel on the South Shore by giving to our general fund. Our general fund uh, operates the day-to-day ministries and functions of our church. And we want our footprint on this piece of property to ring loud with the gospel, and the way we do that is by giving regularly, faithfully, to our general fund. And we've also covenanted together to give to our missions fund so that the gospel would not just ring out here on the South Shore, but it would go beyond the South Shore that we would support our missionaries around the world with our finances. Now, the the current state of our economy means that we're living with less and less margin in our personal budgets. Everything costs more, which means 
we may have less and less to give to the church or to other gospel causes. But we can learn a lesson from a church Paul mentioned in this passage. In verse 26, he referred to the churches in Macedonia as some of the contributors to the offering for the famine-stricken church in Jerusalem. And we might think that the church that's able to give funds to a church that needs funds must be a church that's affluent. But I want you to listen to how Paul described the churches in Macedonia in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. He described them this way, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. He described them as being in a severe trial and having extreme poverty. And they met that with joy and generosity at the opportunity to give to help the mother church in Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot of reasons why we might assume a particular church shouldn't concern itself with kingdom giving. We might think that a church under persecution would get a pass. Or we might think that a church in extreme poverty might get a pass. If you and I were leaders organizing this special offering for the Jerusalem famine, we might even think it best not to include the Macedonian churches because they sound like they need a special offering of their own. However, the Christ who suffered makes a difference in suffering people. And so the poor, suffering Macedonian Christians overflowed with joy and generosity. Paul's praise for them wasn't in the amount they gave, but in the generosity of their hearts as they trusted in Jesus Christ to meet their needs. You and I look for reasons not to give, but the Christians in the early church, their giving couldn't be stopped. Not persecution, not extreme poverty. We're going to give with joy and generosity no matter what. And so in what way are you funding kingdom work with your own personal finances. Some people who don't give to kingdom causes will say they don't have the money to do so, and I trust that every person knows their own financial situation, and for sure there are times when every one of our pennies belongs to somebody else. However, Christians who do not give to kingdom causes more often than not, it's not a budget problem, it's a faith problem. We put our money towards what we value. And so if all we had was a record of your spending to give an account of your heart, what would your spending say is valuable to you? Where are you invested? Are you invested in the kingdom of God? Look, be the kind of Christian whose generosity cannot be stopped. So if we were to pick one verb to summarize this commitment, it would be the verb give. Will you commit to give to gospel work? Will you commit to love, to speak, to give? And one final commitment, it's a commitment to pray for gospel work. So here at the end of the chapter, Paul asks the church to pray for him. Look at verse 30. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, 
through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in prayers to God on my behalf. And what did Paul want them to pray? He, he didn't just say pray and then leave it blank. He actually gave them three things to pray for. First of all, in verse 31, he wants them to pray for his protection from opponents that he's going to face when he goes back to Jerusalem with the financial gift for the suffering Christians there. Second, he wants them to pray that his ministry to the Christians in Jerusalem would be well received. Paul sees this financial gift from Gentile churches as an important point of connection between these two groups. It communicates to Jewish believers that the gospel has made one body out of these two groups that were previously divided. And the third thing he wants them to pray for in verse 32, he says, pray that he would make it back to them in Rome uh, for his joy and for his refreshment. So Paul's three requests are for protection from enemies, for good reception among believers in Jerusalem, and for a safe journey to Rome. And these prayers all anticipate his gospel ministry in Spain. For him to get to Spain, these things need to be prayed for and need to happen. So he needs uh, protection from his enemies so he can get to Spain. And he needs a good reception in Jerusalem before he goes to Spain. And he needs a good journey to Rome prior to go, going to, to Spain. And I love how Paul describes this kind of praying in verse 30. He says this prayer is how the church in Rome will strive with him or, or will join him in his struggle they are partners with Paul in his mission to Spain through their faithful praying. Now, we know that Paul never made it to Spain. He went to Jerusalem. He delivered the gift. He was arrested. He was ultimately shipped to Rome as a prisoner. So he made it to Rome, just not in the way anyone anticipated and we believe that Rome is where he died, as a prisoner. Now, assuming the Roman Christians prayed as Paul requested, does this mean that their prayers failed? Far from it. Not only did their prayers sustain Paul in prison, we know that the gospel ultimately made it to Spain. In fact, by the end of the third century, the gospel had engulfed all the countries around the Mediterranean Sea. Now, this is sheer speculation on my part. Feel free to take this and throw it away. So I just say up front, this is my imagination at work. But I do not think it's unreasonable to assume that the church that prayed for Spain developed a heart for Spain. You see, our praying doesn't shape God, but rather God shapes us through our praying. And so after Paul died, the prayer for Spain remained. And maybe, just maybe, it was Roman Christians who were pivotal in preaching the gospel where Christ had not yet been named. And so we must pray for the Lord's work to be done. And we must pray until our hearts beat for the glory of God among all people. We must pray in such a way that God would change us, shape us, that, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind in our communion with God. Will you commit to pray for gospel work and for gospel workers? The letter 
to the churches in Rome is an act of literary persuasion. Paul is asking followers of Jesus to make four commitments. The commitment to gospel-shaped relationships, the proclamation of the gospel, to financially support gospel work, and to pray for gospel work. And we can sum up those four commitments in these verbs that we would love, speak, give, and pray. What kind of person is a student of the book of Romans? It's the person who loves others, who speaks good news, who supports kingdom work, and who prays like no one else is praying. What kind of Christian is a cardiac Christian? The Christian who loves and speaks and gives and prays. Brothers and sisters, the task in front of us is massive. Our church is a unicorn in this region. Be sure we are not alone in our gospel work. We have sister congregations that we love and we have linked arms with in our neighboring communities. But we are not many, and the task is great, and the time is short. Are you in? Will you strive with us for the name of Christ? right here where he has not been properly named, where we are surrounded by cultural Christians, surrounded by agnostic Christians, surrounded by worldly Christians, will you be a cardiac Christian for the cause of Christ? Will you partner with us in our church to make the gospel as potent as possible here on the South Shore? If you have children, will you let us support you in the discipleship of your children? If you're married, will you let us help you with the cultivation of your marriage? Will you use your gifts and passions to serve those who are in need in and through our church? Will you pray for our missionaries? Will you let us pray for you and care for you in your times of need? Will you plant gospel seeds in your relationships with those outside the faith? Will you live in such a way as to be known for your likeness to Jesus? Will you be a cardiac Christian? If you are to be that kind of Christian, it begins with one commitment first. And that's recognizing Christ's commitment to you. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ... You need to know that he has committed himself to you in a most profound way. Although you're a sinner, although we're all sinners who have broken our relationships with God, he doesn't sit and wait on us to clean ourselves up and come to him to make things right, but rather he has come to us. He loves you, sinner that you are. And here's what he has done on your behalf. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the one and only perfect sacrifice for our sin. There is no one else who could do what He has done for you. And Jesus came to us, lived perfect life, showed us the kingdom of God, and then He laid down His life as the sacrifice for your sin. He didn't just teach you how to be a better person. He died as a sacrificial lamb for your sin. And you didn't ask for that. You didn't even know you needed it. But he knew what your soul would require. 
And so he laid down his life. When he died on the cross, he died in your place for your sin. And three days later, he rose from the dead. If he's still dead, this is all a colossal waste of time and resources. But he's alive. Rose from the dead. You can go today and you can see an empty tomb in Jerusalem. There's no cover-up, no mass hallucination. This is what God does for your salvation. He died and rose again. And his promise to you is this. If you will turn from your sin and turn from your self-righteousness, and if you will trust in Him, you'll be His forever. He'll forgive you, save you, you'll be His child, and He'll be your Heavenly Father forever and ever. He's made this commitment to you, and today He invites you to make this commitment to Him. Would you make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? Say yes to Him today. Let's pray together. Father, make us cardiac Christians from the heart, not hypocrites, not worldly, but your men and women through and through. And your call to us is clear. And throughout your word, you call your people to make commitments. Joshua asked Israel, choose this day whom you will serve. Jesus, at the end of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, said, are you going to be the type of person whose life is built on the sand or on the rock? And here at the end of Romans, again, you call your people to commitment that we would love, that we would speak, that we would give, that we would pray. And we can't do these things in our own power. Holy Spirit, we need you. And we have you. We don't have to convince you to come or to be. We don't have to invite you into this place. This is your place. We have come to your house. And so by your power, let us walk in these commitments, that we would love one another deeply, that we would preach the gospel boldly, that we would give with joy and generosity, and that we would pray so that your kingdom would come. Lord, let us be your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.